more tags, no tags. What's up? What's up? What's up? Welcome to a new episode of TMD, further known as the Midnight Drop. I'm your host, Jordan Malone. Thank you guys so much for coming into today's new episode. I'm excited to go ahead and bring you some good, good knowledge, some good, good learning in this wonderful midnight hour. But first of all, I want to go ahead and thank you guys for listening to last week's episode regarding the return of TMD, the rebranding of it, and also just announcing announcement of new content, new stuff that we're going to be doing later down the road, and just uh, making goals and making achievements down the road. I appreciate you guys listening last week. And tonight, we're going to be really talking about some stuff that we said last time. And uh, yeah, it's going to be really dope tonight. But let's go ahead and go with some quick updates regarding the following week. So I already know I have a couple reviews for you guys. One that's going to be regarding a video game you guys know and love, Apex Legends. The other one's really going to be about Love Jones, the old school uh, African-American romance movie, which is full of black love. I love it so much. And we're going to go ahead and do a review of that real quick. Then... We're going to have a book discussion regarding Barack Obama's new autobiography, A Promised Land. I've been reading it so far. I'm up to part five. It's a really, really long book, but it's worthwhile in every detail. We're going to go ahead and do a book discussion on that later down the road. Uh, I already put up a new blog post regarding uh, YouTube sports journalism is trumping over mainstream sports media. It's a big blog post where it's kind of an opinion piece, how I feel that Eeps. Sports media programs such as ESPN and Fox Sports is is kind of, you know, dying down a little bit now over to smaller platforms on YouTube. I suggest you guys go ahead and try to check that out. That would be much helpful to me. You can go ahead and check that out at www.medium.com or at www.themidnightdrop.com. Go ahead and check that out. Go ahead and leave a like and comment. And yeah, that'd be great. But let's go ahead and get into tonight's episode regarding HBCUs versus COVID-19, where I'm going to be sharing my experience, uh, revisiting the conversation we had about HBCUs versus PWIs and bringing in some knowledge and information that you may or may not know, and just making an overall take into it. Uh, and let's go ahead and get started with just talking about what I talked about before, where I talked about how HBCUs versus PWIs, we did a big analysis comparison regarding what are the gaps between HBCUs and PWIs? What makes people attracted to either or? Uh, what is the history between them and how did this all start to where we get to now? And one of the big takes from it was that financially HBCUs are five steps behind PWIs. While we see PWIs go ahead and do these really big things where they're able to make medical schools, medical programs, business schools, they have the ability to make these pathways that are integrated into the city that they're in and make these really big 
college towns. It's quite fascinating. And then regarding HBCUs, we very much have very small campuses where we can be very lucky if we get like certain things uh, advertised or promoted in certain businesses like that. And while have that being said, people are still attracted to HBCUs because of the tradition, because of the culture, because of the togetherness, because the the familiarity of black people in the community. And that's just something that draw me into an HBCU such as Morehouse College. It drew a lot of people into Spelman, Clark Atlanta University, uh, North Carolina A&T, TSU. Uh, the list goes on. But with that being said, including some of the uh, testimonies I got from around, like I believe, 25 people, half and half uh, PWI HBCUs. With that being said, I want to go ahead and fast track it all the way up to around the month of March where COVID-19 started becoming. And in the beginning, there was this massive panic for HBCUs. The institutions were already subjugated and have been subjugated to financial turmoil and the consistent problem of catching up the PWIs. So with COVID-19 creating a new normal for the country, HBCUs were already made aware of the various implications that could devastate them. In the first couple of months, you had major HBCU sports conferences canceled. Uh, certain academic programs put on hold because of fears of the virus and some schools already at heavy disadvantages regarding how to keep up with the virus and testing efficiently when it came down to coming back to school. Uh, just like with everybody else in the world, a lot of HBCU students were forced to go back home. A lot of them were forced to go back home to uh, homes uh, that weren't really suitable for them or, you know, a lot of their families had to get out and it was a big, big, big problem. And uh, with that, you know, all of these problems started accumulating and stuff like that. And uh, some people, some people had already made predictions that HBCUs would take the worst of the pandemic in a matter of months. And it's not really that hard to make predictions like that. I mean, when you look at the history of HBCUs, you know that there's going to be massive problems uh, that go into it. And, And it's a big thing because it just feels like man like there's so many things that go on i mean like financial aid's already a problem uh retention rates are already a problem in certain schools uh you you, you think that hbcus are going to catch the blunt force of covid-19 and in a way we, we kind of did but it's not as bad as people thought and i'm going to go ahead and try to explain that by talking about this article from inside higher ed in uh, npr where in comparison to PWIs, HBCUs have either had a lower amount of cases than their white counterparts or even none due to the transition to online classes. Um, There's this article in Inside Hired Ed uh, and NPR where they have like the same interview with the president of North Carolina A&T or the SGA president of North Carolina A&T or, you know, the assistant dean and several other people where they've talked about they battled uh, against this virus uh, do numerous means and it's really some of the stuff from this article really says a lot about what uh, what HBCUs have been doing to combat against this virus and still have classes and it's crazy man it's really really dope man it's really really cool now that doesn't mean to say that North Carolina A&T and these other schools haven't had like spikes and I'll and they've especially have had their fair share of outbreaks later down the road. And I'll get into that a little bit. Uh, But I want to go ahead and get into this quote that I thought was really, really interesting that I want to try to go ahead and find it because I think that it was dope. 
uh, overall, I'll kind of just give you a summary of what it was. It's mostly about how um, the president of North Carolina A&T uh, know that because of what COVID-19 and just other health problems contribute to the African-American community and how uh, those same communities where we live in uh, are forced to take the blunt end of COVID-19. They know that it, we have the responsibility to make sure that we do what we can to stop the spread, to be responsible, wear our masks, sanitize, sanitize stay six feet apart, all of that stu- stuff. And I thought it was dope. I thought it was dope. It was really, really, really dope. And, and including with the part where the fact that you have this going on while around like the, the, the later part of May and all the way to like August, even till now, you've had these massive protests regarding the, the deaths of African-American uh, people from police brutality. And it's a very commendable thing. But yeah, throughout this article, it's really just talking about how like, you know, we're facing two two different threats and African-American students, HBCU students are really taking charge to make sure that outbreaks are not big. And here's actually a quote uh, from one of the people from North Carolina t Our students are different because they're facing two different threats, COVID and a racial reckoning. They are constantly seeing that play out and they don't know if the government has their back. So there's a higher premium for them to protect themselves and each other to ensure that they don't fall victims to illness or violence. And that's really basically just bringing all the things together about how you have, you know, a president. Well, at the time, a former president who was BSing. You have uh, police brutality against people that look like you. And then you have COVID-19 that can is easily contractable just by being near someone. Um, but this goes on to say this. Brenda Claire Caldwell, president of the SGA at, in, in North Carolina A&T, agreed with that assessment. I think some of it is the HBCU culture, she said. We're just like a community and we want to keep our community safe. We know that black and brown communities have been affected by COVID and some of us have had family sick from it. And we know we're going to go back to our vulnerable communities. And I think this motivates us. See that? Like I said, because we know that COVID-19 is going to attack the African-American community a whole lot harder than, say, like a white community in a normal suburb. We know that it's going to be a problem. We want to make our due diligence to make sure that cases go down. Now, again, like I said, because in the beginning, cases are not as bad as PWIs, that doesn't mean that it's still a problem. I mean, I can pull out these numbers and tell you real quick that HBCUs are doing better. It's not a pissing contest because this whole thing sucks, but I'm just trying to give you a better perspective of what it's like. You know, University of Alabama, you've had total 3,219 cases. Alabama A&M and Alabama State combined have had about 43 cases, Tuskegee about 110. Florida State has had about 1,738 cases with University of Florida, 5,008. Bethune-Cookman's only at 47. FAMU's 195. Georgetown University's 177 cases, while Howard University's only have 39. And then if you just keep going down on the list, the list, the list, it's just on and on and on. And you can get these numbers from the Washington Post. Just Google the Washington Post uh, COVID-19 cases by each state uh, college, and you'll be fine. Uh, it's very interesting. Now, I know that some colleges have moved to online learning, so some of them may not even show up. And some of them are that's why some of the numbers are kind of low. And also, you got to look at the student body size. But if you actually compare it, though, it's actually really cool. It's really dope. 
and I'm still gonna bring it out because I thought it was just really interesting. But again, because you have these low numbers, that doesn't mean that these institutions have privy away from any increases of cases or other problems. I believe that a week after those interviews with the North Carolina A&T administration and SGA, there were spikes in cases uh, that, that were just really, really bad. Uh, yeah, it was like a week ago that it was applauded. There's a point where North Carolina, North Carolina A&T, where Prairie View University, you had a spike from six to six cases on October 15th to 41 cases uh, as of October 19th. And that was interesting. Uh, there was a number where it was like you had a bunch of uh, athletes that were catching COVID. And yeah, here we go. A week later, North Carolina A&T State University reopened its first of three on-campus clusters of virus infection. Again, this was on October 19th. Eight students in a residence hall, five members of the Aggie men's basketball team, and 10 members of the marching band in 10 days. So that's really, really big. And it really just shows you that, yeah, we're doing well, but that doesn't mean we're, we're not susceptible to these crazy outbreaks that happen day after day after day in this country. And that's just really give you a, a bigger picture of like how things can turn south real quick. But I also want to go ahead and turn your attention to something that I thought was really interesting, too, that's regarding uh, how certain HBCUs are being helped to better equip themselves for virus testing when it comes to students coming back to campus. Most notably, Howard University and Morehouse College were among the five HBCUs to receive millions of new equipment for COVID-19 testing. Now, this is coming from theundefeated.com where they're using, there's this picture where, you know, if you're right here, you can see Thermo Fisher Scientific Equipment uh, where it's really just about using like thermometers, uh, sanitization wipes, uh, and I'll go ahead and I'll read off some some of this. That was cool. The initiative called the Just Pro the Just Project after pioneering biologist Ernest Everett Just is part of Thermo Fisher's effort to be a leader in COVID nineteen testing for returning students, faculty, and staff. Uh, you had certain students that are on the problem. This. Uh, there was a point where it's like, yeah, Howard University was among a pool of five HBCUs to receive $15 million in new diagnostic instruments from Waltham, Massachusetts Bates Thermo Fisher Scientific to provide technical assistance for schools to establish or expand their labs for regular on-campus COVID-19 testing throughout the 2020-2021 school year. And mostly these were for HBCUs that they said, we're not going to do online school. We're going to go ahead and just go straight in. If you want to do online, that's great, but we kind of want you guys to come in. Uh, not only Howard got it, but you had Morehouse School of Medicine, Meharry Medical College, Xavier University of Louisiana, and Hampton University. But a lot of these schools are well known for combating COVID-19 and are doing research as we speak uh, to combat against the virus, including help develop a vaccine. I know Meharry Medical College is doing a big part by providing free COVID testing with the Tennessee State Department of Health. I thought it was really, really dope, but it really goes to show you that not everything is so bad and that because we in this, we're living in this time, where we're trying to pay attention more to HBCUs and make sure that they're given the respect that they're supposed to be given, but you're seeing this change. Uh, but that doesn't mean everything is all sunshine and rainbows. Remember when I said that HBCU sports conferences are going down the drain, that they're 
canceling seasons and stuff like that. Uh, again, from this same site, theundefeated.com, there's an article about how the cancellation of seasons, COVID-19 is forcing the MEAC into uncharted territory, where it's talking about how the MEAC, the SWAC, the, the SIAC, they're forced to be in this position where they got to go ahead and just say, okay, we're done. We can't do anything. And it's costing a lot of money. And it's also causing a lot of players eligibility, eligibility issues. I don't even know if I got that out right, but let's go ahead and keep going. Uh, there's also another article from the same site, undefeated.com, where it's talking about FAMU's trying to go ahead and just cancel their entire season. Uh, the women's basketball team. Um, you know, you also have like this... It, this article from diversity education where it's talking about how COVID-19 could possibly take the role of messing up accreditation for certain HBCUs regarding financial issues and regarding just academic issues. Uh, it also goes more into the role of HBCUs during the COVID-19 crisis uh, where it goes into more of the things that there's a big, big problem. I know I've been saying good things about it, but there are some really bad things that come from COVID-19 uh, against HBCUs, most notably just the students. Uh, in this article from Diversity Education, uh, there's actually an example from Jarvis Christian College uh, where 78% of the students did not have laptops or other technology, while 73% of those students lacked Wi-Fi. And yes, that's a small school, and those numbers are really high because it's a small body of students. Think about schools like Morehouse. Think about schools like TSU. Think about schools like Spelman. Think about schools like Clark Atlanta University. Go on that entire list of HBCUs and ask yourself how many students had to deal with not having the capability of doing online learning when it was forced upon themselves. How many people do you think had the, had the opportunity uh, to say that they could be able to do this stuff uh, easy peasy. Uh, how many people do you think from these schools uh, had problems with financial aid and just financially in general because their families were either put out of work or were medically disabled because of COVID-19? There's a lot of factors that go into this. And because we're coming from communities where we're, we're dealing with health disparities, where we're dealing with financial problems, where we're dealing with racial injustice, we have to understand that a lot of these students from HBCUs are already struggling and HBCUs are trying to find a way to, to help students out because that's what it is. It's about the students. You can go ahead and tell me on and on about how schools are a business, but it's always students first. And this is the one of the big problems when it comes to HBCUs, that their students are, are dealing with a whole lot of stuff. Yes, you can go ahead and tell me that, oh, but at Vanderbilt, oh, at, at UT, you have the same students. But we're talking about HBCUs. I don't want any whataboutisms right now. And goes on. this article goes on and on and on about how, you know, if we keep shutting down and we don't have students come back, we could end up having, you know, finite, you know, accreditation turmoil from numerous HBCUs, including the big names. And I can go on and on and on about this one, but I know you guys don't want to go in too much about it. And again, that's from Diversity Education. I'll have the link below. But I'll go ahead and I'll kind of wrap it around with just my takeaway and just what I've been doing. Uh, so this past semester, you know, I finished my first, my fall semester of my senior year. Hooray to me. 
hopefully grades will be in on time this time. And I just had, you know, a very interesting semester. Professors not really doing what they have to do. Professors doing everything they have to do to make sure we're successful. Uh, rolling blackouts of my uh, school's assignment system, whatever it is. And, and just so many things that really pissed me off. But I'm just glad that I made it to the finish line. But I want to go ahead and I want to put this in a big takeaway of mine that maybe you guys can leave leave here with some uh some new thoughts some new knowledge something to think about while you go to sleep not all hbcus seem to don't seem to be on the brink of failure due to the COVID 19 fallout but that does not mean we should steer our attention away from them especially after the pandemic dies down this is just another slice into a bigger pie african americans during this COVID 19 pandemic are struggling hard worse than some think Please, I I beg of you, please take notice of not only how these institutions fight to survive and catch up, but also low-income black communities are doing the same. Take notice that while we are living in a public health nightmare, black people have have known this for a long, long time. They've been through this. The difference is that it's been strengthened and more exposed because of COVID-19. I can go on about the public health crisis regarding African-Americans that we as black people face from a day-to-day-to-day basis. Uh, We've always catched a blunt end regarding public health crises, and this is just another big example. And like I said, it's it's strengthened and more exposed because COVID-19 is more contagious. Uh, You have these situations going on in America where it's just like people don't want to wear a mask. Uh, I can go on and on about this. But I want to go ahead and bring you guys with this, that this this HBC versus COVID-19 crisis is just a smaller pot. It's just a, another slice in the piece of pie when it comes to African-Americans and public health. And you need to take notice of it, of how we're able to adapt and survive and how we're using our due diligence to make sure that we don't exacerbate the spread of the virus and do everything we can because what we have as HBCU students is the culture, the tradition. We've already missed homecoming. We've already missed uh, the friends that we see in classmates and in classrooms. We miss our nice professors. We miss all this stuff. And the best we want, the, what we want to do to the best of our abilities is to make sure that we get through this as fast as we can so that we can get back to there. I'm already a senior. I'm not going to be able to put in that. I'm not going to be able to experience that really a whole lot anymore because I got life to deal with. But for people behind me, I got to make sure I do the best I can so that they can have the experience and not be in this situation like I am right now. This very, very, very shitty situation. And that's just my takeaway from that, man. That's really my whole thing regarding, you know, how COVID-19 has affected HBCUs. Again, I got these articles down here on the link below if you want to go ahead and check them out. Uh, if you guys want to go ahead and put your, your two cents about it, you can go ahead and do it in the discussion tab at themidnightdrop.com or at medium.com. I'll try to go ahead and make an article about this. But yeah, man, that's that's really about it. I thought it was just really, really interesting to go ahead and bring that in full circle around this episode. But yeah, I mean... That's all I can really say. This is a big thing. So let's go ahead and clean with some quick updates regarding uh, what's going on throughout the week. And just something I want you guys to expect uh, regarding the midnight drop. 
So later on down the road, we're going to have a book discussion about the promised land, uh, a book, an autobiography made by Barack Obama. That's going to look at his experiences regarding his first term um, in the White House. And, you know, the first couple of parts are also talking about like his rise into the political game. And like I said, I've gotten to part five and I want to go ahead and leave off with this really nice teaser. Uh, I think it's a really great book. Uh, there are some things that I have questions about. Uh, I can't really say that there are, you know, flaws in like in, in his writing or something like that. I mean, a little bit, but like, it doesn't mean that it's too, too bad. It's his autobiography. God damn it. I'm going to criticize his life. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> that's, that's, that's bullshit. <laughs> but there's some things that I, I take away from this book so far that I really enjoy. Uh, this book is long as hell. I'll tell you that right now. Around 745 pages. That's long. On Google, it was like 945. I was like, God damn. But I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I'm going and getting it day at a time. But I think it's a really interesting book that gives you the perspective of Barack Obama and the shit that he's had to deal with during his first term and gives you kind of like some foreshadowing regarding events that later on happen in the world, including after presidency. And I thought it's really, really dope. Uh, I want to go ahead and do a discussion and just give you my full thoughts about it. I wanted to do like a 10 minute review, but this book is so long and it's so interesting that I want to go ahead and make and dedicate a full episode into it. And we're going to do that on December 5th. So I want you guys to go ahead and mark your calendars for that. December 5th, a promised land book discussion. I'll go ahead and do that and we'll go ahead and talk about it. And if you guys are interested, you guys go ahead, go ahead and get the book at your local uh, bookstore or you can just go online to Amazon. That's pretty much safer because of where we at right now so yeah uh the last thing i'll go ahead and put in is that regarding the youtube channel uh very much interested to putting up a video uh i already have some ideas for what i got i've been ticking around with davinci resolve studio 16 i very much love that and also just getting some new stuff in so we can guys go ahead and be entertained regarding the youtube channel for the midnight drop but that's about it man thank you guys so much for coming into tonight's episode and listening about hbcs versus COVID 19 and also including a couple updates regarding the episode and the podcast in general i want to go ahead and give you guys my gratitude for coming in today and i want you guys to go ahead and listen to this episode on anchor soundcloud spotify uh the website www.midnightdrop.com uh Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, and anywhere else where podcasts are listened to later on down the road. We'll try to get this on YouTube. And again, go ahead and read my blog post on medium.com and also at the Midnight Drop website. Uh, go ahead and read them in there. And if you guys have any ideas into what I should write about, go ahead and inbox me, email me, or DM me at 615 underscore chill. I'll go ahead and get the Midnight Drop uh, Instagram page up as soon as I can. But you can guys go ahead and DM me at 615 underscore chill. That is it, guys. Thanks for listening to the Midnight Drop. I'm your host, Jordan Malone. Thank you guys so much. You guys go ahead and get y'all rest. Stay, stay blessed. Stay safe out in the streets from the big corona. And go ahead and be blessed. I'm out, guys. Peace.